following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, good morning, everyone. I hope i am got enough audio here. All right, good. I want to welcome you into the uh, auditorium if you're out there in the hallway. Or go or to your Sunday school classes if you're heading out that way. We do have to get started though, so we're going to go ahead and do that. I have an update from um, two updates actually. One from the Mitchells. I want to just share that with you this morning briefly that they are uh, on their way to their next uh, missionary endeavor. They uh, all met, their team from three countries met in Dubai successfully yesterday, we got that word, and so they're on to Zambia, uh, either on their way or uh, just about to or just got there or something. I don't know when that's going to happen, but everything looked good so far. So that is a seven-member team, two-week outreach that's going to happen with uh, Todd and Kathy Beeman. So pray for them and uh, their ongoing work the next two weeks. We got a uh, update also from Tim and Christina Gosen. It's been a while since we got an update from them, and I won't share everything here, but uh, they uh, have, uh, they want to just share with us that they want to communicate a little bit more timely what the Lord has been doing in the last months and uh, want us to uh, forgive them for that fault of uh, not keeping us up to date as well as they could. I have done that, so you don't have to do anything about that, but... Uh, he, he says, the Lord continues to add lively stones to his church. Uh, they give a fellow by the name of L, uh, a 23-year-old young man, and began reading Bible alone in his home. He was devouring the scriptures, and by December he had read through the Bible once and was on his second time. Another one uh, was talking to this person's mother, and uh, so this... Uh, Hector invited him and brought him to church, and he's been attending services ever since, and he accepted Christ as Lord and Savior just recently. So that's a new uh, living stone in our church uh, edifice, and we can thank the Lord for that. And uh, then uh, a couple that I met down there uh, a number of years ago named Omar and Ariana, I knew Omar before he was married. Uh, They returned from helping Terry and Carol Thompson in Chile for almost a year. Uh, They were in a very kind of compromised situation because of COVID, and they were not native to Chile. They were from Argentina, so they ended up going back. Um, But they have uh, come back to uh, Gualaguaychú, where Tim is, and uh, so they have been working with uh, Omar's brother as well and uh, in ministry. So... Things are, things are going along very nicely. That's about uh, half of the items there. I'll give you some more another time. But uh, pray with me about those. Anything else this morning that we should pray about? All right, join me as we look to the Lord. Father in heaven, we bow before you and are grateful to you for the opportunity to serve you today and to be able to be under the instruction of your word in peace. We thank you, Lord, for that and pray that you'll maintain that in this assembly and today and throughout the day and throughout the upcoming weeks, too. We pray for churches about us who are of like faith and practice, Lord, that you'd prosper them. Lord, we 
ask for your blessing upon the ministry of Jack and Jennifer Mitchell. We pray that they will all arrive safely in Zambia, that the work will go on there well, that uh, they will not have any hindrances to their work, and that, in fact, instead of hindrances, they will have encouragements and people so eager to be helped by the service they can provide, but also who will also encounter the gospel message. And then, Lord, we want to thank you for Tim and Christina Gosen and their children and for the church there in Gualaguachu in Argentina. Thank you for this update. Lord, we pray for uh, the young men that I mentioned and uh, Omar and Ariana. Work in them, Lord, with, uh, according to their need, and we ask your blessing in their lives for those new living stones that are coming into the church. And, Lord, for the, the work that is being done there, not only on the building itself, but also on the body of believers. And we pray that you will uh, encourage and strengthen them. And in the midst of the rolling lockdowns and other things that are still being experienced there, we want to give you thanks. We praise you for your kindness and for your love, for your protection. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. One year ago tomorrow, we had our uh, first Sunday that we did not meet one year ago. That was March 15th, that Sunday, and uh, we're glad to be back here uh, live and in person at the church, and uh, looks like uh, pandemic is getting behind us, not gotten behind us yet totally, but it's moving in that direction, so we are thankful for that. The curve uh, is going down as far as cases in Washtenaw County. Uh, some of you saw that I sent that out uh, to the WhatsApp group, and that's very encouraging to me. I hope it is to you as well. Um, and I did not send that out to the church email list, however. So if you're on that email or on that not on the WhatsApp group, you didn't see that. But uh, things are coming along nicely. In fact, uh, we're back to like September levels in terms of number of cases per week, and that actually turns out to almost match the peak back last March, April. Uh, so it looks to me like the curve is kind of, uh, you know, from last March, it kind of went up and then it came down in the summer. Then it went way up in our typical flu season and now it's coming right back down again. So it's actually is looking like a flu season curve. And um, we have 29.4 million cases of COVID in the United States. That doesn't quite meet up to the number of flu cases we had the prior two years. Uh, last two years before that, flu season was 35 and 38 million, somewhere around there. So we're getting there to that number, but of course this is just more deadly because it's a novel uh, virus. It's new to the human race, so we're having to deal with uh, those difficulties. So yes, it's real, it's a problem, but uh, we who trust Christ know how to deal with that kind of thing and, uh, and successfully so, and to be prudent. So just a little note there before James comes and teaches us the word this morning. We're looking forward to more Nahum, I presume. All right. Well, come along, brother, as you would maybe say yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. We are in the book of Nahum, where we have been for a while, and I suspect we'll be there for another while. Now, this morning, 
we want to review some of what we looked at before. One of the things that we have continually and repeatedly said is that the book has few words compared to some of the other books in the Bible and in the Old Testament, but that the message or the messages are not minor. The prophet is called a minor prophet simply because of the limited number of words. And so we find very concise expressions in Nineveh, I mean, in this book of Nahum, concise expressions, but the expressions that are used Sometimes they refer to things that could use volumes to really, in detail, carefully explain. And, of course, we're not going to go through time to accomplish all of that. But I'm saying that to set the tone a little bit for what we're doing this morning. But first we will note that in Chapter 1, we have gone through Chapter 1, and the last time I ended in the last part of Chapter one, And we see the main thing there being God's judgment on Nineveh being a certainty. And so I just, for the main head, and I just said God's judgment on Nineveh is certain. So that when Nahum was speaking, he was speaking about a judgment. And it was a certain judgment that was coming. It wasn't an if, and, or maybe. The second chapter, the major part of it, or the major theme, as I see it, is where we see a description of God's judgment on Nineveh is described. And so we see certain things, specifics, about how that judgment would meet out or work out. And then when we get to the third chapter, we'll see there more expressions about the reasons why judgment was falling or coming to visit upon Nineveh. Three chapters. In verse number three of chapter one, we read there the words, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Slow to anger and great in power. Now, the second part of that says, and will not acquit the wicked. So he's great in power and he will not acquit the wicked. The Lord is good. Look at verse number seven, also in chapter one. And there it says, the Lord is good, a strong hold in the day of trouble. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Now the next part of that says, 
and he knows those who trust in him. So that those who trust in him have something very special, very precious. They have something that is awesome. They have a God in whom they can rest in the midst of trouble. A God whom they can trust in the midst of trouble. A God who is a stronghold in the midst of trouble. Who gets through the world without trouble? Who gets to do that? If you get to live long or even short, you're likely to have trouble. And to have the Lord to say, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand upon the earth in the latter day. I know that my Redeemer lives. That's a good place to be. Now, one of the things that is interesting here, I talked about how the judgment on Nineveh was certain. Now I want us to look at verse number 15 in chapter 1. Here's what it says. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast. Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, it's, that's an interesting expression there. He is utterly cut off. That sounds like a present. Change verb there. I understand that that is called a, in Hebrew a prophetic, perfect, a prophetic, perfect. It's as if it has already happened. The certainty is that great that it can be expressed that way, as if it has already occurred. But, of course, we must not be misled to think that because, that because it is expressed that way, it must have been written after the fact of the invasion that was coming upon Nineveh, that's an error that a lot of very uh, smart people make. They don't accept this as a prophetic utterance, but rather as a historical record of something that occurred. Notice now, though, so behold, in the feet of him who brings uh, good tidings and proclaims peace. And Judah is being told that they are to perform their vows. They ought to do all the things that they should be doing when they are properly worshiping their God. They're saying they need to do these things. And now let's skip to verse number two in chapter two and see what that says. 
For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob, like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. So one of the things that we have said is that we see here messages. Some of these are directed towards Nineveh and Assyria, and all of those are bad tidings for them. But there are other ones that are directed towards Judah, and there are glad tidings for them. And so Judah can find hope because they can say the God who is the true God. He hasn't abandoned us. He's still God, even in the midst of the trouble that we have now, even in the midst of the trouble that we've been through, even in the midst of the Assyrian people having done what they did to those people there, our people, Israel and the northern kingdom, our God still reigns. Now, in verse 1, of chapter 2. Notice this. This is like a taunt to Nineveh. And it says this, telling him what to do. Or the king who was in charge at that time. He who scatters has come before your face. Man the fort. Watch the road. Strengthen your flanks. Fortify your power mightily. The idea is that if the Assyrians were going to be able to handle themselves and defend themselves against the judgment that Nahum said was coming, that's what they would need to do. So that's a stark contrast because we just said from chapter 1 that the judgment is certain. But did the Assyrians know that the judgment was certain when they were carrying on as they were? And so now I want to spend a little time thinking about verse number 2 here. It says, The Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. Now, whether that speaks specifically of Judah and Israel as separate or them together, but it says that latter part of that, the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. So there was a lot of harm that came to them. A lot of harm. And one thing that we want to look at is this notion about the excellency, the excellency of Jacob. I'm going to turn to the book of Ezekiel. And we'll find something very, very interesting there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Lamentations and then Ezekiel. In chapter 37, 
Ezekiel chapter 37. And I'm going to begin reading at verse number 15. And while I'm reading, I, one thing I want you to kind of, kind of take a mental note of the expressions of I will, where God, this is saying that God is speaking. He's saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. You, we remember the infamous statements of the I will statements of, of Satan, wanting to be like God, saying he, I will be like the most high. But I want you to take note of these I will statements that are here. One of the things that we realize is that Israel was a people whom God referred to as my people, and he did it over and over again, even in the midst of their greatest sin. They still were called his people, my people. Beginning now in verse 15 in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it. For Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions, Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. See the imagery here. We can imagine just seeing it because of the explicit and detailed way that the expressions are put here. Verse 18, And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? They will want to understand. So here, he says, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their land. Now, in Nahum, the northern people had already been scattered out of the land. They were scattered. They weren't in the land. And it was going to happen to Judah, the southern kingdom, as well. But he said here he was going to bring them into their, their own land. So while they were not occupying the land, whose land was it? He said it was their land. They just weren't occupying it at certain times. And I, I will make them one nation in the land, 
on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. Future things, something to look forward to, something to have hope in. They can trust the God who sent it. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they dwelt shall dwell there. They, their children, and the children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst or in their midst forevermore. We teach here that there is a future day that we refer to as a millennial kingdom. And that the things that are expressed here will occur. They will be, as the book says they will be. What are we saying? We're saying that we can know about certain future things. Not by mysticism or occultism, but we can know by virtue of the one who will cause those things to be. How many I wills did you notice in those few verses? I think I noticed, well, I think 11 is the number I came up with, but you know how it is when you're trying to count these things. And, but anyway, all of this, though, see, God is saying that he will do it. So the Assyrians are people who came on the scene in a historical setting. And they did what they did. And Israel, as rebellious as they were and continue to be, were still God's people and God had a program 
And he had already declared that he was going to do certain things. And that certain things were going to come to pass, and they were. And there was nothing that could be done to cause it not to be so. So this people then that we see now in this section we read as future in a millennial kingdom where the nation will be regathered. But God began to talk about what he was going to do with regard to a special people way back in the first part of the book of Genesis. In chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, it says, Now the Lord has said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God had a people. Now when Nahum was writing to them, it was a time or when his prophecy was being delivered. It was way down the line, centuries beyond this statement made regarding Abram. Abram even hadn't even gotten the name Abraham by then. But God had a plan, and he still does. And his plan will be accomplished. Now, a tragic thing from the way we look at things is is that when Nahum is speaking, he's speaking, and he's talking about that. He's talking to the people in Judah as far as these encouragements. The kingdom not only was already divided by then, but half of it, or one part of it, had been decimated and ruined. So, a divided kingdom. So to start with, one, you get David, and then you get Solomon, and then you get Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And so from a kingdom that was just one, it got split into two. Split into two. Assyrians went in and wrecked one of those. And now the other one is not far from meeting that same fate. So if the people now would just be looking from a natural eye, just from a secular vision, we might call it, it would be as if there really is no hope. There isn't any hope. It would look that way. But if they were to see what God is saying to them through their prophets, 
and believe the message that God has given through the prophets. Then even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of the trial, even in the midst of the trouble and the difficulty, there is still hope. If we have trust in the living God, there is still hope. There is still hope. And so the excellency, those, that kingdom to be brought back to become one again. So one of the interesting things is I read one time I was preparing for one of these and we talked not just about the Assyrians and what they did to the northern kingdom and now we know also what the Babylonians and the Medes would do subsequent to this to the southern kingdom and we know about persecutions of the Jewish people in history. I spent some time reading about pogroms and all kinds of things. We all are familiar with Hitler's goal. People attempting to wipe off from the face of the earth a people. Now, I suspect that there are many people groups who have specific names that the annals of history don't record because all memory of them as a people group has been erased. This people, Israel, was a small people group comparatively. And so it would seem that it wouldn't be that impossible to cause them to be put out of existence. But it was amazing to me some of the things that I read about some of these persecutions that occurred over and over and over. A lot of these things in Europe and all that. Going in and burning whole villages of people killing all of them, wiping out the whole village. Why? Because they were Jewish. All kinds of things being blamed upon them. Because, see, that, that kind of thing gets piques the imagination to say, well, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, why can't all of these enemies who think they are so brilliant, why can't they get rid of these people? Because that's what they're trying to do. Why can't they do it? They can't. And the reason is, is because these are what God said, my people. So the people are not going to be able to escape judgment for wickedness, but they also are not going to become annihilated and non-existent. That can't be. Because God says, I will restore them and I will return them to their land. They will be called out of all of the places where they have been scattered, and they will again dwell in their land that I gave them. The land that he told Abraham about, he says, I'm going to bring them back again into that land. The inheritance, the excellency, of Judah 
out of Israel. I had some other verses here. I'm going to read a few of those. In Psalm 70, 47, and verse 4 says, He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. Or in Psalm 87, verses 2 and 3, The Lord loves the gates of Zion, more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And so in Nahum chapter 2 and verse 2, For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob, like the excellence of Israel, for the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. They were in a very difficult place. The emptiers. So many things had happened to them, many difficult things. So we see that, I think the clearest way to put it is that sin has consequences. When God says he will not acquit the wicked, it means exactly what it says. They're not going to get a pass. They will not be acquitted. But he is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. And he is still God and will ever be God. Now let me just read a few of these descriptors about what's going to happen here in verse 3, chapter 2. Nineveh, listen. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And his spears and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to their walls. And the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are open. And the palace is dissolved. It is decreed, she shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and a maid servants shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breast. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now 
they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry. But no one turns back. Take spoil of the silver. Take spoil of the gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side and all their faces are drained of color. These are some descriptions of what was common to be the portion of the Assyrians. To be on the wrong side of God's program is a bad place to be. To be in opposition and to be fighting against him. And that's what God says specifically. That's a bad place to be. And you know, no matter who does it, they can't win. And so really the question is, why fight a battle that can't be won? Why fight it? Why fight that battle that can't be won? The battle against God can't be won. But many nations and people fight it all the time, every day, against God. Our Father in heaven, we ask you to help us to have a mindset of wanting to understand what is required of us to be in a right relation with you, dear Lord. So help us, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, with thanks. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention.